Uh, well, good to see you this morning, and uh, we're going to jump right into the Word. We've been on this journey together for the past 40 plus days, and many of us, through the weekend messages and our time in the 50-day devotional, and then in discussions in our small group, have been experiencing important shifts in our thinking and in our believing. Many of you have been taking to heart the Apostles' encouragement in Philippians 2.5 to have this mind, which is yours in Jesus Christ. What a challenge, to think like Jesus. That's what we want to do. Well, there are notes in your worship folder this morning. You can follow along. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. And in Philippians 4, Paul begins the closing of his letter to the church, and in Paul style, he doesn't uh, slow down, and he takes a while to get to the end. He wants to get a few more things in. He's still challenging us to shift our minds, to think differently. So where's he going now? Well, he's not going to slow down. He's going to dive headlong into the mind shift of thinking and living in a way that brings unity in the church. So we're going to look at what he has for us in Philippians, beginning in verse 1. Let me read that for us. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things." Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So we want to look today at this idea that Paul is giving us that we are to have a mind shift, that we, we live and we think in a way that brings unity to the body of Christ. And we're going to take a moment and just look back at his introduction So this chapter in verse 1, we actually looked at this last week, but I want us to start out there so we get a running start into this chapter. So let's glance at it again. Look at the words that Paul chooses here to describe the people of the church at Philippi. Brothers, whom I long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. These are deeply passionate words, aren't they? You know, I think the Apostle Paul sometimes gets a bum rap as kind of a harsh, stoic, authoritarian kind of voice. But I think he shows him his true self here. That his strong counsel and his teachings 
come from a heart of love for people and for the church. You know, I'm one of those people, I love notes and letters and emails. I love texting. It's the greatest invention known to mankind. My wife doesn't think so, but I think it's great. I love communication, especially when communications are peppered with encouragement and words of affirmation. And even better, when the writer of some communication tells me that they love me or that I'm important to them or if we've been away from each other for a while that they miss me, don't you? You know, there's nothing like someone that you respect and care for when they say to you, I'm proud of you, right? Isn't that what Paul is doing here? You are my joy and crown. Paul is saying, you are the reason I endure imprisonment and hardship. You're the reason that I press on toward the goal. Wow. You know, I'll take hard words from someone who cares about me that much. And when he talks, I'm going to listen because I know it is out of his love for me. And I think Paul does this here because he realizes we're going to address some important issues. So as I talk about these, he says, remember, I love you. You know, this is the parent who says, now this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Remember as a kid and I thought, you got to be kidding me. Well, first Paul starts out with an appeal for unity in verses 2 and 3. And so he starts out with this brief and impassioned reminder of how much he loves these people. Paul goes headlong into the conclusion of his letter, and his first topic is a situation that has arisen between two women in the church. Now, I know that this would never be the case here at New Life, where two individuals have a struggle in their relationship, but humor me and listen carefully. So these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, now those of you who are expecting, and I know there are a lot of you these days expecting, put these in your baby name book. Okay? You got that over here? I want a Euodia or a Syntyche. Okay? They've gotten into some sort of disagreement. Now, these really are the early church church ladies. Maybe not quite like that. You know, I wondered how many people would get that joke because those of us in our would know who that is. Those of you who have no idea what just happened, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> Evidently, this disagreement was impacting the entire church community. So Paul goes as far as to name these two ladies in his letter to the church. Now, this may seem harsh, but let me tell you this, how Paul operates when he's writing. In his letters to the churches, one of Paul's habits was to leave enemies unnamed. And what that did was it denigrated them by their anonymity. Remember when he talked about the enemies of the cross? No names. It's as though Paul's saying, you know you're out there, but I'm not going to let you think I'm going to even say your name. So by naming these ladies here, he shows evidence of friendship that they had rather than keeping them at arm's length. And the apostle appeals to them individually, notice, by repeating this phrase to both of them, I plead. 
I plead with you, Euodia. I plead with you, Syntyche. He's showing that he's not taking sides nor distributing blame to either one of them. And he says with them, to them, I plead with you, or the ESV says, I entreat you. The idea is of an appeal. Well, my question is, why wouldn't Paul just simply use his authority as an apostle and say, stop it, get over it? Well, in the context here, we see that he's really just humbly asking respected co-laborers to behave in keeping with the gospel that they have all defended together. You have, we have to learn from this, don't we? You see, there is always a more important issue than our disagreement, our way, our opinion. The bigger issue is that we are brothers and sisters, co-laboring for the sake of the gospel, and we cannot let conflict get us off track. That's what Paul is pleading for. This is why Paul says that they must agree in the Lord. Throughout this letter to the Philippians, Paul has asked these people to be like-minded, of one mind. He's pointed his friends to Christ, who not only sets the standard for our selfless servanthood, but also transforms our minds and motives by his Spirit. We read verse 5 of chapter 2 a moment ago. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now again, Paul reminds these sisters who have contended with him for the gospel, shoulder to shoulder with himself and with each other, that they are together in the Lord. When your relationship with a Christian brother or sister hits an impasse, when you cannot resolve a disagreement, when it is a strain even to be in the same room with him or her, at that moment, you must both pause and take to heart Paul's gentle reminder to Euodia and Syntyche that there is a third person involved. The tense situation includes not only believers who disagree with each other or who have hurt each other, but also the Lord, in whom you both now live as citizens of heaven. You're to agree in the Lord. He urges them not to merely decide who is right or even come to some compromise acceptable to both of them. His concern is that their disagreement over whatever issue and forever how long it had persisted has disrupted their ability to exhibit in their relationship with each other the unity that is theirs in the Lord. You see, I think there is a withness for the Christian life. Now, don't look that up in Webster's. It is not there. It is our second made-up word of the morning. There's a withness for the Christian life. This idea that we live and grow in Christ with one another. If we look at verse 3, it's not immediately evident until we pull back into the original languages and we see that there's a series of Greek words in verse 3 that begin with the prefix that would be translated with. And so Paul does this. He says that there's this leader who needs to step in and help. And he says, we are yoke, he is yoked with Paul. Working alongside Paul like oxen in tandem. We work with one another. And the help that that person is to give is to hold with them. Hold with these ladies. He also says that they have contended with Paul for the gospel as a soldier at his side. And they were part of a larger circle of fellow workers who work with Paul. 
With, 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 with. Paul drives home the point that we are in this together. With each other. We must have a mind shift that this is not about me, it is about us. Really what he's saying here is this, that there is an adhesive that holds the Christian community together. A glue an intangible thing that holds us together as a family. Well, what is it? What is it that makes reconciliation imperative? Why is Paul so worried about this? What's this glue? What's this adhesive that holds us together? It is the mercy that God has shown us in the gift of His Son. So we can take an even further mind shift that it is not about me. And beyond that, in the end, it is not all about us. It is all about Jesus. Because it is Jesus who places us in his family and who promises us that our names are in the book of life. Simply put, Paul uses this phrase to remind these ladies. Hey, look back on chapter 3, verse 20, when I said we are, our citizenship is in heaven. You see, we are held together by God's mercy. And we have this promise that our names are in the book of life. We are citizens of heaven, that we await a returning Savior and Lord from the city that defines our identity. You see, we are citizens of a place that we have never been. But it is that place that defines us. We are citizens of heaven. Remember that the source of our enrollment and our election is the unfathomable love of the Father. Its basis is the blood of the Lamb. And then the Spirit comes and gives us grace to live out this reality. Paul is saying you need to live out who and whose you are. He is challenging us to let the Spirit of God in us overshadow any and every interpersonal friction that threatens to divide us. Oh, that the church in the United States would understand this. We are one in the Lord. We are one as citizens of heaven. We are one in His mercy, so we can and must stand together. And so he says to these ladies, agree in the Lord, remember who you are, we've got important work to do. And then in verses 4 through 6, and then the very first, first part of verse 9, he shares with them habits of faithful believers. What's, what's this going to look like? Now this is not disconnected to this, what he's saying to these ladies. He's saying, here's what you really need to be focusing on. Let's agree in the Lord. Let's remember whose we are and who we are. Now here's how you should be living. And remember that this list springs from Paul's love for these individuals in this church community. There are two ways that we can handle the stresses of life, and I believe Paul challenges us with them here. One approach comes preloaded at birth, or it's kind of on the hard drive of our hearts. The other can come only from a radical change of heart and a perspective that is changed by the gracious intervention of God. The first approach is rooted in a desire to control the variables of our lives 
through diligence and ingenuity and hard work. Does that sound like anything we hear in this country? This approach says, I'm in control, I can do it. And I can do it all by myself. The problem is that this option bumps up against the harsh reality that so many factors of life are beyond our control. And it ends up offering nothing but stress and frustration. Ask the employee or the breadwinner who gave decades of competent and loyal service to a company only to be downsized in a time of recession. Ask the cancer patient whose oncologist sadly changes the subject from treatment to pain management. Ask the homeless victims of tornadoes and hurricanes, of floods and droughts and wildfires, if they feel that they are in control. What Paul is saying here is more than, don't worry, be happy. That's not the approach to life he is advocating. He is challenging us to to a radically different approach to the troubles that tempt us to worry. He is offering more than whatever emotional balance we can cook up through happy talk or some stress management technique. He is offering a life anchor to us of the joy that he has found through having his life defined by Christ and his cross and his resurrection power. As we listen to Paul's challenge here, let's remember that Paul is not living in some sort of vacuum where stress and discouragement were not taking place. He is writing from prison. Not only just sitting in prison, and we know it, we've learned about this, right? We know how long the chain was. That's how much we know about his imprisonment. He's writing from prison with the possibility of brutal execution on the horizon, and he writes to these people in Philippi who also face real-world threats. And I think these are things that are in our lives today, and they threaten our relationship with the God of peace. What are some of these threats to our peace? Well, the first one I'd say is rejection. Paul and his friends face the pain of rejection. You'll recall that that Paul had lost everything he had once considered gain. He had forfeited his Jewish community, and he was now accused of violations against the law of Moses and the temple, and all this from people whose high opinion he once treasured. He writes to the people of Philippi who History tells us it had been smeared as disturbing civic order and advocating anti-Roman practices. There had been levels of rejection. Another threat to their peace was resistance. You see, for Paul and the Philippians, things had gone beyond personal rejection and had escalated to overt, even violent resistance. Remember that Paul had been beaten and jailed and locked in chains and threatened with worse. Rejection and resistance and even recession. Now, financial hardships were always at hand for Paul and the church. In this same chapter in verse 14 that we'll look at next week, Paul calls these financial difficulties my trouble. Throughout his letters, Paul has described the extreme poverty of the churches in Macedonia. Well, guess where Philippi was in Macedonia? It was one of those needy churches, those, one, those churches that were in extreme poverty. They were suffering a recession of sorts, financial difficulties that can rob peace. And then they struggled in their relationships. 
here at Philippi, and to a greater extent in Corinth, Paul is dealing with people who are struggling to work together with a common purpose and relationships are strained. Remember that in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul challenges them to replace rivalry with humility. And on top of all this, I have to believe that this is like, our, like a church today where there were stress, the stresses of crumbling marriages, defiant or even secretive children, of misunderstandings and competing agendas, of the lack that a sense of, that sense of oneness that we long for with our closest friends. There were threats to their peace of rejection and resistance and recession and struggling relationships. Well, friends, if the fear of rejection and the pain of rejection by family members or coworkers or former friends or leaders even have put you on the defensive, if heavy, overt pushback has come from those who reject your commitment to Jesus, if financial pressures cause you to feel that you must stop giving to the work of the kingdom and make ends meet on your own, then you need Paul's prescription as much as these first century believers at Philippi did. Here we see habits of faithful believers who know and live in their true identity that is found in Christ alone. We cannot let the threats to our peace overtake us. And Paul gives us some habits to live by. The first is rejoicing. Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And as though he knew that when this letter was read, somebody would go, oh. Paul anticipates it and says, I will say it again, rejoice. And then whoever did, made that noise would think, how did he know that I was going to make that noise? He tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. How often? Always. How can that be possible? Well, it's possible because our joy is rooted in the Lord, the one who will never leave us. And because of that understanding, we can rejoice at all times and in all circumstances. Paul even said in one of his letters, I have, I have understood how in whatever state I am that I can rejoice. Now, Paul had never been to Michigan. I get that part. But <laughs> in whatever state he was, he could rejoice. Let me remind you that all the resources and the things that we see in our culture are temporary. The things that we put our hope in, that we try to put our peace in and gain our peace from, are all temporary. Only God and His promises are strong and true. Now this does not mean that we never will experience sadness or the grief of loss. Even Paul, in this letter, has told us that he had felt sorrow over Epaphroditus' fear, uh, near-fatal illness, in chapter 2, verse 27. And he had wept over those who behaved as enemies of the cross, in chapter 3. So he's not suggesting that we not have emotions. This would be impossible to insist upon. I think Pastor Tim Keller says it best when he says this, to rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart is sweetened and rested, 
and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. So to rejoice in the Lord is to resist the instinct to focus on visible pleasures and problems and to concentrate our minds deliberately on treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ. His majesty and His mercy and His purity and His power to fully believe that He really is all we need in every situation. Now for many of us, that is a major mind shift. Paul tells us to rejoice. It's a habit that we have to build in our lives. The second is gentleness. Or a better word for that is reasonableness. This term refers to the calm and kind disposition that enables a person to offer a nonviolent, even generous response to others' aggressions. It is the opposite of quarreling. It means that we have to choose to not die on every mountain of disagreement. Something I use if, if I'm in a disagreement with somebody is I think, is this a mountain I am willing to die on? This is really something I'm going to stick a flag in and fight for? One thing I always say is that if everything is important, nothing is important. If, if, if I put everything equal... If I put every opinion I have as important, nothing is important. This idea of gentleness or reasonableness is, I'm not going to die on this one. This is, I'm going to give in on this one. Because this is not worth the kingdom. Remember that in Philippians 2.2, Paul tells us to let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. A mindset of gentle humility fosters unity. And then he tells us to be people of thankful prayer. See, now he's going a step further. He's saying, replace your worry with prayer. He says, always keep your hearts turned to and tuned into God. You know, we tend to sometimes approach God in a very grumbling and questioning way. And that's okay because he's God. He can take that. But we need to cultivate coming to Him in gratitude and expectation. How can we do that? Well, because He's already given us so much. Why are we focused on what we don't have versus what He's already given us and done for us? See, we are to bring every concern to Him. We're to take them to Him, speaking them to Him. Not so that He knows them. He already knows our needs but because it expresses our dependence and trust that He cares for us personally and delights in His children coming to Him. Then we see that we're to do this with thanksgiving. Why? So we don't degenerate into a list of self-centered demands. And we're grateful for those things that He has done and is doing in our life. This type of thanksgiving is a natural response to a generous gift one writer puts it this way, it rises up from the heart when we are delighted by a gift beyond anything we expected because it is unearned and undeserved. We're to be rejoicing. We're to be gentle. We're to be coming to God in thankful prayer. And then the very first part of verse 9, let's pop down there and see that Paul challenges believers to do what he does, to practice Paul's pattern 
What you have seen and hear from me, practice. What have they seen in him? Well, certainly they'd seen and heard from him these habits that he's just challenged them with. I think as these were being read to the church, there were probably head nods. You know, that's Paul. He's always rejoicing. They'd remembered back to when he and Silas were in prison and they rejoiced throughout the night. He's always rejoicing. He's probably rejoicing now. He's in prison. They knew that he was reasonable and gentle. They had seen him in thankful prayer. But even more so, I believe that what they'd seen in Paul was his life that they had watched. They had seen him go from the killer of Christians to a man full of the fruit of God's grace. They had seen the gospel take root in his life. They had seen Paul suffer in the past when he was with them in Philippi, and now they were hearing of his continued suffering in prison. Let's recall Philippians 1, 20-21, when Paul said, It is my eager expectation and hope that with full courage now as always Christ be honored in my body, whether it is in life or in death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do this, he says. This is what you need to do. What his friends had heard and seen in Paul was the effect of Jesus Christ transforming a selfish, sinful man into the beauty of his own image. Bottom line, the path to peace is having the living God deeply at the core of your daily life. Paul is calling us to ponder Christ's perfection and then practice that in our daily living. So what are those perfections of Christ that we're to ponder and think on? Let's go back to verse 8, and he gives us some ways of thinking. You'll remember a couple weekends ago, Pastor Steve said that right conduct begins with right thinking. That is Paul's point here. When we think on these right things, we will conduct ourselves in these ways. As we start to get our mind on the right things, our actions start to change. When we get our eyes on Jesus, we start responding out of love toward Him in obedience. And He gives us several things here. Think on these things, Paul says, those things that are true. Those things that are true. Shedding the control of deceitful desires. We live in righteousness and holiness characterized by truth. We put away falsehood. We let our conduct be the proof of His truth. Think on things that are true. He says to think on things that are noble or honorable. This is a word that's used to describe men and women whose spiritual maturity and dignity and authority make them worthy of others' respect. Don't we want to be those kind of people? Whose, our maturity and our dignity, the author, our authority in Christ makes us worthy of others' respect. Paul says, start thinking these things that are noble. He says to think on things that are right. Now, it doesn't mean, this word doesn't mean correct. This word means conforming to God's perfect justice. Right or just. Think on things that are just. He says, think on things that are pure. That which is free from defilement and pollution. Not just in the realm of sexuality, but our deepest motives. Think on those things that are pure. Think on things that are lovely. This word is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It simply refers to the quality that warrants and attracts admiration. 
We go to the Franklin Park Conservatory and we look at certain plants or flowers. Why? Because they're lovely. They attract admiration. Then he uses the next word, admirable. This word is in contrast to something that is able to be slandered. So we see this idea that we are to live in a way that is above reproach. And I would submit that many of the things that we look at and take into our minds are less than lovely and less than admirable. And as we look on those things and we start thinking about those things, it puts our mind in the wrong place. He says to think on those things that are excellent. Those th- it simply means ethical integrity. Think on these things that are excellent, that have integrity. Well, why? So you become a person of integrity. Then he says, think on those things that are worthy of praise. Anything deserving of commendation. This can be toward God or toward others. Those things that are worthy of praise. Not that junk that we get our focus on. Not the, the nastiness and smut of our culture. But those things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and worthy of praise. Think on these things and they will start to change your behavior. Paul urges us to fix our thoughts on themes that are not only intrinsically virtuous because God approves them, but also visibly virtuous, attracting the approval of others to the things of God. The term rendered here, think about, expresses taking into account. So it's take into account these things. Get these permeating your mind. Get them changing you. So in our culture today, we must blend our appreciation with discernment of defining true virtue. Not by human standards, but only by its supreme standard, the character of our holy creator, the one revealed in scriptures and in his son. Our framework must always be the gospel of Christ for what we are to think, think on and act upon. And then as we start acting this way and we start thinking this way, there is a promise to obedient believers in verse 7 and the last part of verse 9. There are promises connected with thinking and behavior that is laid out here. We are promised the protection of God's peace through the presence and power of the God of peace. It is a peace that guards like a soldier who ensures that prisoners don't escape. You see, our souls are under attack and they need God's protection. And the peace of God protects us from those attacks. Paul promises that peaceful calm will replace worry when we pray to God and give thanks for the grace that we have already received. We also see that this peace from God is completely because of and through him. It is a deep peace that comes only because of God's reconciling mercy that ended the hostility between us rebels and himself. When our hearts and minds are guarded by God's peace, our motives are ruled by his reconciling, unifying love as we relate to others. You see, Paul calls us as Jesus did to be peacemakers and peacekeepers. Just as he was calling Euodia and Sintiki to be peacemakers keepers and peacemakers. What's he saying? You got to be thinking correctly. You got to be focused on the right things. This is going to change your behavior and these petty differences that are coming up are going to change. 
They're not going to take place. You're going to be able to deal with them because your thinking is in the right place and your desire to behave in a right way is going to be pleasing to God. And through it all, the promise that the God of peace is with us. What a promise. What an incentive for this mind shift. This mind shift where we think and live in a way that brings unity in the church. I ask that you consider a couple of things. Number one, is there a relationship within the body that is hindering your walk with Jesus and the mission of the church? Are all your relationships clear of ongoing conflict? If not, then I'd encourage you here in a few moments to come and have a prayer partner pray with you. And let healing begin here. I'd encourage you to do what Paul says and agree in the Lord. And decide this isn't about me, it's about us. And it's ultimately about Jesus. And then number two, are you struggling with something that is threatening, even stealing the peace that God desires for you to live in? Maybe it's something hard that's happening in life right now. And you're struggling. Having the peace of God, your, your thinking is off, you're just focused on the situation, this issue, or this person. Maybe it's a focus on things that are not truly excellent and pleasing to God. Maybe your eyes are taking in things that are changing your thinking and now the behavior is coming out and it isn't pleasing to God. I'd encourage you to come too. Because in this place today, what God has for you is a desire for you to find freedom and find healing and find God's peace. Father, we thank you for this peace that you offer us. God, may we take to heart the words of the Apostle Paul as he has challenged us today. Father, work in lives in these moments of quietness, these moments of worship. We're going to take just a few minutes of quiet. Seated where you are, I challenge you be asking God, what are you saying to me now? How should I respond? I encourage you too to hang in there till the end because there are some folks who are making a commitment to Christ today through baptism. They want you to rejoice with them. You see, it's not about me. It's about us. And it ultimately is about Jesus. So let's quietly just go to the Lord and in a few moments we'll stand together and worship.